We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode of Inside Golf Podcast is brought to you by RickRunGood.com. We are the largest golf betting and fantasy-focused statistical database on the internet. Ton of great tools over there, not to mention all of my premium articles. We're banging out three a week over there. In-depth course breakdown on Mondays, season-long fantasy rankings on Tuesdays, final DraftKings thoughts on Wednesdays, not to mention Cavs' wonderful ownership projections, lineup generators, model builders. We've got all of that, plus premium Slack channel. Very vibrant community we got going on over there, and uh, we'd love to have you join us as part of the team for fine of this home stretch on the PGA Tour schedule. British Open coming up right around the corner. Going to be here before you know it. So head on over to rickrungood.com, promo code Andy. That is the important part. If you want to help me out, just type in Andy in the coupon code section so they know that I sent you. And it's a wonderful community to join. We'd love to have you a part of it. All right. Coming up on this podcast, bringing on Garrett Morrison from the Fried Egg, uh, a golf writer and podcaster that I have been admiring from afar and following the work of for for years now. And I thought he was the perfect guest to chew on a couple lingering thoughts that I had about LACC regarding where the discourse went, uh, how it turned into such a controversial U.S. Open, and mainly where the USGA goes from here uh, and what we think the identity of a U.S. Open venue should be, what the USGA should be striving for in its primary national championship. So we dive into all of that stuff, uh, jam-packed podcast. Uh, Let's bring on Garrett. All right, Garrett Morrison of The Fried Egg is here. One of my personal favorite golf writer, someone I've wanted to have on the podcast for quite a while. I was really just waiting for the the perfect spot. And as I told you over DMs, I've been so fascinated by the discourse surrounding the U.S. Open uh, that we just completed at Los Angeles Country Club that I wanted to bring you on to chew on some of this stuff with me. So let's start big picture. Is Reese Jones the biggest winner of the 2023 U.S. Open? You know, I saw some tweets to this effect. I think it's the dumbest possible response to this entire situation. It was so frustrating to me to, <laughs> to see some people genuinely espouse that take. But you know what? If we want to hold U.S. Opens at exclusively Reese Jones redesigned golf courses, then maybe that's fine. 
maybe maybe that's just what the U.S. Open is from now on, and those of us who are interested in other things can move on to other things. But yeah, certainly there are some people out there who thought that he was justified by some of what happened this week. Did the discourse overall surprise you? And I talked about this a little bit in the initial recap podcast that I put out, but it felt like a a lot of the criticisms that people had for the course, it turned into this giant smorgasbord of everybody lumping in, not just the fact that they didn't like the golf course, but also probably people that don't like Los Angeles, people that didn't like the television coverage. And a lot of it also felt like people people not liking what LACC seemed to represent. Mm -hmm. Did you, did you catch the pretentiousness of it all? Did you catch that vibe at all that it it kind of all just conglomerated into one giant hate fest? Yeah. And which is not unusual for Twitter. I suppose I didn't really think about what was coming, but if I had thought about it a little bit beforehand, I probably would have expected some of this kind of backlash you know, before the tournament, a lot of us who knew the course pretty well were trying to communicate that the scores would not be yes. around even par, that the that the winning scores would not be around even par. I think that was fairly clearly conveyed by me and Andy and other people who had played the course and studied the course. And so, you know, I suppose if I had thought about it, then I would have expected some of this unhappiness about the scoring because people have certain ideas about what a u.s open should be maybe these ideas are based on kind of fantastical nostalgia but they're there they're a real thing and people want the u.s open to be a certain thing and this course just was never going to deliver that specific kind of u.s open especially under these weather conditions but i think that what you're saying about the kind of combination of a lot of different complaints about LA, about LACC, about architecture. I think you're really right that those all just sort of became this mass of unhappiness with some people. And it's useful, I think, to try to differentiate some of those different factors and talk about like what's valid there. And then also what we don't find valid. Of course, there are a lot of blue checks out there on Twitter right now who seem to have strong opinions about Los Angeles without having ever visited the city. That's one thing. And there's a little bit of a political undertone there. Maybe they're getting their information about what Los Angeles is from certain sources. That's one thing. The other thing is this backlash against the elitism of LACC and some of the things that the club did to try to make this a different type of event, right? Not a People's U.S. Open trying to buy up all the tickets. Those complaints I find completely persuasive and I share in the unhappiness around that. LACC definitely should have been more receptive to making this a people's championship. Now, I don't know if they could have gotten more people on site. Having been there, it is tough to get on site. You can see how they're really limited in that regard, but they probably could have gotten some more people on site. They probably could have gotten the galleries a little bit closer to the greens in some situations. And they certainly could have pushed back on the club's desire to have a huge portion of the tickets for themselves. The USGA could have pushed back on that. So I get that part of it. But then there's the architecture 
you know, portion of the criticism. And that's, that's a whole other subject. And it's a specific subject that should be addressed specifically and not bound up with all these other things. Okay. So that's what I want to touch on first and get to the ticketing issue and more of what we think the U.S. Open should represent a little bit later. But the one thing that I kept noticing is there seemed to be a lot of confusion this week between criticisms of what is set up and what is architecture, right? I think a lot of people that thought they were criticizing the architecture of the course were actually criticizing the setup. And I think it you know, one thing that's important to note, and you can probably speak to this because you were on site. What days were you on site? Thursday through Saturday or Wednesday okay. through Saturday. I saw one of the practice rounds. Okay. So I, I wasn't there on Tuesday or Wednesday, but I spoke to a lot of people that were on site. Was it really bouncy on Tuesday and Wednesday? Like some people said, you know, I wasn't there on Tuesday. I didn't really see that much of a difference between yeah. Wednesday and Thursday. Maybe there was, I, I heard that there was some watering going on and that maybe there was some, there was some concern about pace of play when yes. officials saw what the course was like on Wednesday. Certainly the practice rounds on Wednesday were incredibly slow, but practice rounds are slow for a multitude of reasons that don't necessarily have to do with the course. And so I think that what this really speaks to is the fine margins between what we would consider a bouncy course for this kind of field right. and what we would consider a course that's too slow. To be honest, on Thursday, it looked pretty bouncy out there. Yeah. If any of us had been playing the course on that day, we would have been like, oh my God, how crazy firm is this place? This is so hard. But for these pros, you know, if the if the if the setup is pushed a little bit in one direction, then it makes a big difference. And I think that that's what we saw on Thursday. Well, that's what really surprised me too, is that it seemed to me like the USGA got a little bit spooked based on what they were seeing on Tuesday and Wednesday. And they responded by what I thought were really surprising pins. Pin positions I, were kind of the the biggest. Yeah. <laughs> but it but it wasn't just that. The course played 7200 yards. I mean, they moved mm -hmm. up T they moved up tees on five holes. The 300 yard par threes that everyone was losing their mind about uh played 220, right? Mm -hmm. So the thing that I think is important to note is that if you do push it too far, that is way more of a disaster for the USGA that they potentially cannot come back from than the alternative. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what I heard about the course from some of the practice rounds is that it was firm. There were some pace of play concerns. You know, the thing about the U S open that a lot of people don't talk about either is the back end of that U S open field is not a lot of, you know, the U.S. Open field is not as strong as the Players' Championship field or the PGA Championship field, right? right? We were missing. Yeah, you've got some people who had a few but, good rounds in qualifying out there, for sure. Yeah. Right, exactly. And <laughs> what, what essentially happened was, you know, they probably pushed it on the side a little bit of too easy with the scoring. The other thing that I want to point out that people didn't completely talk about is that the scoring wasn't that absurd on Thursday outside of two insane spike putting rounds um, from two excellent players that basically had 
two of their statistically best putting rounds that they've had in years, right? So, I mean, that is just going to happen every so once in a while. But essentially, you know, they have such a tight rope to walk where Mm -hmm. the players are going to complain about certain things if it even teeters closest to the to the closest edge of this may potentially be unfair and they want to avoid that at all costs so i understand why people were upset at thursday i was upset at thursday i do think the usga overcompensated a little bit with some of their pin positions and the way they set up tees and guess what that's going to happen again at U.S. Opens. Their job is so hard that that is going to happen again at U.S. Opens, where it's either going to be too easy and it's going to upset people, or it's going to be too hard and it's going to upset the players. They have an incredibly hard job right now, walking this tightrope of where if they want to go to the best golf courses in the world, but they also want to protect par, the solution is either to roll the ball back or go to 7,800 yard Torrey Pines every year Mm -hmm. with 20 yard fairways. And they also want to avoid a player revolt because that's what was happening after Chambers Bay 2015 and Shinnecock Hills 2018. The players were deeply, deeply unhappy about those setups. And these days the players have a lot more power than they did at the 1974 uh, US Open at Winged Foot where the players were also unhappy, but the USGA at that point was in more of a position to say, you know, screw that. We're going to continue doing what we want with the setup. We're, we're here to identify the best players in the world and make this the hardest test. Well, USGA 2018 wasn't in as much of a position to do that because the players have gained so much wealth and power since the 1970s. And let me just say this. If anybody out there was complaining about Shinnecock Hills in 2018, Saturday, at that championship, if you were bitching and moaning on Twitter on that day, then you don't get to talk during this U.S. Open. You don't get to say a word about how easy the course was on Thursday because you know what? People's reaction to the 2018 U.S. Open, players' reaction to it especially, was the reason why we saw the USGA err on the side of conservatism with their Thursday setup at the U.S. Open. The specter of Shinnecock Hills and some of those fiasco opens that we saw during Mike Davis's tenure as CEO of the USGA are the reason that the USGA is currently pursuing the setup philosophy that it's pursuing, where it says, we would rather have the course be too easy than be too hard. Now, they're not going to say this, but that is what's happening. They are looking for a sensible setup that finds that really narrow zone in the middle between too hard and too easy. But when it comes down to it, they're going to err on the side of too easy. And that's where we are because of people's complaints about past U.S. Opens that were too hard. Because those complaints were by far more threatening to the USGA than complaints that the course is too easy. And those same people also, at least, you don't have to necessarily still agree with it, although I don't know what could have been a better canvas for you to see than this week, at least why this argument exists, but you better at least understand now the argument of bifurcation, right? You know, Mm -hmm. you're watching Scotty Scheffler and Rory McIlroy hit wedges into 540 yard par fours. And this is another thing that I really enjoyed about the article that you had up on the Friday that was something that 
I will hand up Mia culpa, admit that I totally underestimated this week when, you know, in the lead in content, uh, heading into the U S open, I openly said like, this is, I've never been more excited for a major championship in recent memory. I've been blessed to place, get to go to and play some of the good ones. LACC is a top three course I've ever played in my life. Like it is to me, to me it is one of the mass, the great American masterpieces. That's, that's in, in, it is in that high regard for me. And I kind of underestimated the difference between holes that are fascinating for me and holes that ended up being really not that compelling to watch pros play three being an excellent example, right? I thought 15 really underwhelmed for me too. And again, me saying this is another one of the arguments for why I think the ball ball should be rolled back, but it, it was such a stark contrast to me between watching a golf course that to me is about as fun of a four hours as you can spend in America and watching holes that, you know, to me, the tee shot on three is truly one of the most fun golf shots that you can hit, right? You know, the tee shot on six, right? I I know I liked six, but even six lacked, and I heard from a member that they cut down some of the rough in front of the green around those bunkers. Even six, I was like, man, that's that's a top 10 drivable par four in the country. Uh And it it still didn't totally feel that way. So I thought you did a great job of outlining the frustration that I had, where I wanted to say to people, man, if you could play this golf course, right. And then play this golf course, tell me it's not phenomenal. And then try and tell me that you don't at least understand why I want to go back here and see the plays, the pros play it under, you know, maybe a little bit closer to how it was intended to be played. Mm -hmm. And people's response to that, which is very understandable is I won't get a chance to play this golf course because you know it's hard to get on and it's (laughs) a, a very exclusive private club. And the two of us have been very, very lucky to work in the golf industry and get an opportunity to play this course. And so I, you know, I don't want to discount the privilege that allows me to talk about how this course plays for amateurs. But I think if you just look at these holes and look at what the landing zones would be for you as an amateur, as opposed to for pros, then you'll start to see some of this architectural brilliance that we're droning on about, you know, on six, they were reaching that green with three woods. That's a lot different than having to hit driver if you're going for that green. So that's one thing about six. I thought six played pretty well this week overall and that, yeah. you know, the, the options on that hole were still alive and we saw a variety of tactics being employed. I agree that three for this field didn't quite work. And the reason was that everybody could go for the aggressive option, which right. is to carry that little barranca that cuts up the left center of the fairway. Everybody was able to kind of throw their drives out that far so that they could get on the other side of it. Well, guess what? When I play that that hole from basically the same tee, right? I'm playing from the same tee as the pros on that hole because there's no there's no room to move it back. So I'm playing the same hole. For me, an uphill 250-yard carry, even if I'm throwing it out to the right and kind of, and kind of filtering the ball down to the center, that's a really risky play for me. So most of the time, I'm going to be going up to the right on the hill to get a good view of the green, but a little bit longer of an approach. 
that's the other option on that hole. And some pros ended up there this week. I don't know if they did so intentionally, but there were some shots played from up there. But the fact is that 95% of the tee shots ended up in that little goalie because they can all make that carry with a fairway wood, a hybrid, even a driving iron. They're not, they're not in a position where they have to worry about hitting the ball long enough to get to the safe spot on that fairway. So the aggressive option on that hole has become the conservative option for them. And it's the same case on the eighth hole, which is one of the best designed par fives in the world of golf, in my opinion. Well, that hole is kind of puny right now yeah. because, you know, the, the, these guys uh, for, for this field, it's puny because they can get it to that spot in the fairway where the ball kind of runs down to the barranca and there's no threat there. Well, for me, there's a threat. Yeah. There's the threat of getting hung up in those bunkers on the left. Any number of things could happen there. And so often I'm going to be throttling back on that hole, playing out to the left away from the Branca and playing it as a three-shot hole. Well, guess what? Nobody did that that week because they all hit their seven irons as far as I hit my driver. And, and that's just the reality of a field like this, the reality of a tournament like this. When you have some holes down in a severe canyon where the tees can't really be moved back. And that retort of, well, why should I care about the architecture of this course? Why should I care about, you know, the way that this course might have played in 1928 or the way that this course plays to amateurs if, you know, we'll, less than 1% of the people watching the U.S. Open are actually going to have the opportunity to play LACC? I I think that's a very valid argument. This is an entertainment product at the end of the day. And I, I think it got me, it got me thinking a lot about where do you stand on the argument of, and this can maybe transition us to talking a little bit more about the identity crisis that the U S open seems to be in and what the U S opens identity should be and what we want the identity for the U S open to be. I mean, is there an argument that the U.S. Open should be only going to publicly accessible courses. I think so. You know, I, I think that would be one good option. That would be one good identity for the U.S. Open. I don't think it's going to happen because no. we already have U.S. Open venues scheduled out until the two of us are going to be dead. <laughs> but I would like that. I think that's one really good possible route for the U S open to carve out a new identity again, not one that's going to be taken, but I would like that. And so, I could, so could we build a rotation of eight public courses? If we tried uh, to right build now. that out right now, because I, 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 I did I this can, actually before coming to talk to you, I like, I, I like went I through could, and tried to build a road. Did you do get, the same thing? I was thinking about it. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I, the obvious ones are pebble and Pinehurst, right? Yeah. But then you start, and I think there's a, bit of a drop after that if i'm being completely honest but then in terms start, of quality in, in terms, terms of quality, quality of in terms of what yeah. i'm looking for personally yeah, yes sure but then you start getting into beth page and tory pines maybe you throw whistling straights in there right but mm -hmm. i mean there, you could there, or aaron hills or aaron chambers, hills, bay. chambers bay right so you could probably get to eight courses but you know, you would be losing a lot of the iconic ones, a la yeah. Oakmont, a la Oakmont, Shinnecock, yeah. Marion, Oakland Hills, which has been renovated in, in absolutely spectacular fashion and would be an incredible 
U.S. Open venue. Um, so when I thought about this, when I thought about the possible identity of the People's Championship, saying we're going to public courses, we're going to even municipal courses like Tory and Beth Page, then in order to really make that work, I think that the USGA would have to devote some of its many dollars to renovating or restoring some classic American municipal courses yes. like Griffith Park in LA. Yeah. Now, I don't know. I'm going to name a bunch of courses here that I like, and some of them I've been to. I haven't played all of them. I don't know if logistically these places could be made to be a place where you could hold the US Open, entry points, exit points, things like that. I haven't studied those aspects of the courses, but I'm just saying that if you have a bunch of money as an organization, maybe you can restore some courses or renovate some courses so that they can hold your championship. So Griffith Park, the Wilson and Harding courses out there are George Thomas courses. They're nowhere near what they used to be. They've been shrunk a little bit by property boundaries moving in, but there's huge potential there because there's two courses and presumably quite a bit of space to potentially hold a championship if you made those courses you know, championship worthy, uh, restored them somehow, brought in a smart architect to kind of do a tribute to George Thomas. Other places in America, municipal courses that could be restored or renovated. George Wright in Boston. Now, this is a yeah. pretty, you know, severe site. I don't know if you could ever hold a U.S. Open there, but a terrific Donald Ross course. Sleepy Hollow, a Stanley Thompson course in Cleveland, Ohio. They also have Manikiki, which is a Donald Ross course. I think that Sleepy Hollow would probably be the easier one to turn into a U.S. Open venue. You have Swope Park in Kansas City. You have Essex County, Francis A. Byrne in New Jersey. Again, not a course that I, I think you could necessarily, I, I think you could maybe do it, but you'd have to do a lot there to, to make it U.S. Open worthy. Cobbs Creek in Philadelphia. I could go down the list of a number of dilapidated American municipal courses from the golden age of golf architecture that could be incredible people's championship us open courses so that would be the ambitious route that i would really endorse but the fact is that we've got our us open venues until about 2060 and so are we going to abandon that plan i think they probably could but i don't think it's going to happen and does the usga like that that was the other thing that i was thinking a lot about this week is this is a huge disappointment it felt like for the people on twitter which is a small subsect of clearly the population and, and an even smaller subsect of the people that really i, I don't want it because i think the fans are really important and i think the fans opinion should be at the forefront of how the usga thinks about these things right but you know what was so interesting to me is if you look at Twitter this week, you'd probably think that this U.S. Open was an abject disaster, maybe the most unsuccessful U.S. Open in decades. If you asked players, you'd probably get a mixed bag. If you asked members of LACC, and I could, I texted with one of a junior member, by the way, who's mm -hmm. 29 years old like me, completely oblivious and unaware of the internet criticisms <laughs> of the course. Uh, and, yeah. said and can you that, imagine USGA officials too, how insulated they may be from, from the same criticism. And that's what was interesting to me is 
you see Mike Wan come on the telecast, uh, you know, when they're playing the back nine on Sunday and he looks like a pig in shit. Uh, right. You know, they, they would tell you that this U.S., the folks at the USGA that made so much money on corporate suites that they didn't even have to sell tickets. Right. Mm-hmm. They would probably tell you it's a resounding success from a financial standpoint, at least, which, as we've learned in the game of golf very recently, tends to be the thing that drives the bus at the end of the day. So you ask eight different groups of people how they feel about the U.S. Open, and you're probably going to get a different answer from everyone, which probably tells me the answer is somewhere in the middle. But Mm -hmm. if you're the USGA, are you just looking at this and saying, the TV ratings were good, we made a ton of money on this, why does anything else matter? I think time will tell on whether the USGA starts to think that it has to do anything differently than it did at this championship, because I see the possibility right now that the narrative that started on Twitter, that this US Open was a failure, which by the way, I don't accept that as <laughs> as a true narrative. I think that's just something that, that kind of developed through the discourse on there. But if if that story starts to take hold, then the USGA is going to have to respond to it somehow. I mean, the the same thing to an extent happened at Chambers Bay and Shinnecock Hills, where a lot of people thought those championships were just fine. But over time, this narrative started to take hold that those championships were failures. And the USGA ended up responding to that. And so we'll see if the same thing happens here, but it will take some time for us to notice this. One thing I will say about Twitter is that the incentives during these events for what you tweet, what will get attention, what will get a lot of likes, the incentives have become very clear recently. Inherently and that negative. Is, yeah. If you if you go negative, you're going to get more attention. Yes. And I saw this among my fellow cherished media members, a few of which were just sitting there in the media center on their butts answering email and occasionally glancing at their leaderboard and then tweeting that this US Open wasn't macho enough for them. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Not everybody yeah. was doing that, but definitely a few were. And so the incentives are there for people to say certain things about the U.S. Open, no matter what happens. You can either say, this is way too easy. This is not the U.S. Open that I've uh, that I've come to expect. Or this is way too hard. Has the USGA lost control again? Are they so out of touch that they don't know how to set up a golf course? This would never happen in another event. You know, this wouldn't happen at the PGA Championship. Those are two potential routes for you to get a lot of attention on social media. And 
the line is very thin between being able to take one route versus another, right? If some guys shoot 62s, 63s, then your route is obvious. If nobody shoots in the 60s, then again, your route is obvious. You can do one of the two just about every time. And so it's a bit of a game, and I'm kind of tired of it. And it's not like the USGA isn't aware that if they want to keep going back to the courses that they have on the schedule, I mean, they have Marion. Marion's in, I think, eight years or something like that, but they're going back to yeah. Marion before they go. Marion's in 2030. So Marion's in seven years. It goes just to read off so people know I'll give you the next, I'll give you the venues up to 2030. Pinehurst next year, Oakmont 2025, Shinnecock 2026. Pebble 2027, Wingfoot 28, Pinehurst 29, Marion 30. They actually just announced this morning Riviera as 2031. Um, So it's not as if the USGA isn't aware of the fact that they have a potential issue on their hands in terms of being able to go to some of these great venues that everybody loves while walking this tightrope of having the moniker of being the championship that in the past has distinguished itself from the PGA, the lines have become a lot more blurred in recent years because um, between the PGA championship and the U.S. Open. In fact, I think somebody tweeted this, so forgive me, I'm not giving the proper credit to whoever tweeted this, but the winning score over the last like 10 years at the US Open and the PGA Championship, the average has both been like eight under par, both of them, right? That was not how it was in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. The US Open had a clear, distinct identity of being the hardest testing golf, right? And judging by the fact that they're still selling hats in the pro shop with giant grit on the front of it. That is an, <laughs> I, that is an identity that they still at least have some interest in mm-hmm. keeping up while I think they probably cared less about the fact that this championship was one at 10 under par than maybe Twitter did. They have a tightrope to walk going forward. And that is why they have proposed like, Hey, we want to go to these venues that everybody loves, but you guys are going to have to understand that they are not going to, unless we do something, they are not always going to play the way that you saw them play in the 1970s and the 1980s. They need to be clear about their communication around this because yes, absolutely. They still hang on to vestiges of the toughest test in golf. That is still an identity that I think John Bodenhammer, the setup czar at, at the USGA, really is devoted to. He he likes talking about that. You know, he doesn't do it as explicitly as sort of past setup people have at the USGA, but it's definitely something that he's nostalgic about. He thinks about the US Opens from his childhood, from his youth, and he really likes the idea of those. And he often talks about it. So they haven't completely divorced themselves from the tradition of Joe Dye, who was the USGA head between the 1930s and the 1960s. Joe Dye really established this identity. 
with those 1950s U.S. Opens at Oakland Hills and Olympic Club, where Robert Trent Jones had come in and done a lot of work, run the rough up, made the fairways narrower, guarded the greens more with bunkers, uh, put bunkers that, that pinched the fairway at right where drives were landing. That was the formula for making a tough U.S. Open, and it became what the U.S. Open was. Well, the problem is the game and the equipment has evolved so that that kind of setup, that kind of architecture doesn't stop players anymore. They would shred Oakland Hills, 1951. They would shred yeah. Winged Foot, 1974. These players would eat those courses for lunch because the equipment is different and because the training is different and, and also other factors. But the game has moved on. And so they need to come up with different ways of making courses tough and they've sort of run out of options. So it's bound to fail. Trying to be the toughest test in golf, trying to replicate the U.S. Open of the 1950s or the 1970s or whatever, you're not going to do it. It's just not going to happen. People are never going to be satisfied with it because the ways that Joe Dye set up U.S. Open courses to defend against players playing wound balls and persimmon drivers don't work anymore, you know? And, and so you can keep calling yourself the toughest test in golf. You can keep putting grit on hats and keep building up people's expectations about how tough a U.S. Open is going to be, but it's not always going to work out. If it's not windy, if it's not dry, if you're not at Shinnecock Hills or Oakmont, which are still, you know, incredibly tough, long courses for these players then you're going to have a hard time living up to those expectations that you yourself are setting for the championship. So absolutely, I think the USGA has to be clear that the game has changed so much that we no longer can deliver the U.S. Open that we did 70 years ago. The U.S. Open is going to be something different. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. It's going to be really fun to watch. But you guys need to manage your expectations expectations about the score to par because we just can't engineer that anymore i wish i heard something like that from leaders at the usga but yeah i don't think they're ready to go there and think about the reverberations from this too how about that alan shupak article on the oak mom adam adam shupak of uh adam uh, shupak, adam of, shupak uh, usa to is it yeah. usa today it's a uh, golf week yeah golf week yeah. usa today yeah the oakmont members are getting a little bit antsy huh the oakmont members they're like oh <laughs> shit we have gill hands too <laughs> we've got gill hands coming and let's get reese on the line but you know so I, that's that's what worries me a little bit is because for me i want I want LACC to be, I was so excited because as I'm sure, you know, a little bit too, it kind of did take an arm and a leg to get the membership to agree to hosting it. And as we found out a little bit later, that probably at the end of the day, we should have seen the writing on the wall that if it took this much convincing for the USG, for the members to agree to having their national open there, then maybe we could have seen signs that some of this stuff was going to happen. But what bums me out a little bit is that, you know, what's a membership like Chicago golf club that's been in talks with the USGA for years too, that the USGA has wanted to bring a championship to. And I think they do have a Walker cup coming up, but what they've is got, their... They've got some USGA events. They're in the, they're in the yeah. mix for, 
aren't they doing a U.S. Women's Open or something? They're doing a U.S. Women's Open, but to me, they're probably never going to be able to host a, a men's professional golf. Yeah, I, well, I, I hope they don't. Also, because <laughs> I don't know, think the members. Want that's a terrific. To... That's a terrific golf course. That and and yeah, the members are very keen to preserve the history of their course and doing the things that the. Uh, setup crew would do to their course to make it ready for a U.S. Open would probably be pretty unappealing. Well, that's what frustrated me so much is that this turned into this assault on width, right? And now, now I just hope that there aren't membership committees that are looking at hopefully maybe hosting major championships in the future saying, oh, we can't actually go the route that LACC took. Mm -hmm. That is my worst nightmare personally. It's my fear too. Uh, it's it's why I'm so passionate about this, about something that, you know, when it comes down to it, it's just one tournament. It's just one set of courses that very few people get to play. But I'm worried about the example that U.S. Open courses set because it has been historically proven that U.S. Open courses have a profound influence on opinions about golf architecture as a whole. The way that those 1950s U.S. Opens with Joe Dye at the helm and Robert Trent Jones executing the work influenced people's opinions about what their own courses should be. It was profound. It yeah. had a huge influence on the golf that we all play at the courses that matter to us in our own lives. And so I do worry about the discussion around us open courses being as stupid as it was this week where we see one kind of wipey drive from one competitor toward the end of the tournament, a guy that we don't really want to win. We're right. rooting for the other guy. So we want him to make a mistake. It happens to land in the fairway when we don't think it should land in the fairway. And that is an indictment of the entire concept of width in golf courses. I mean, that is just so dumb. It's just so dumb. And I, I worry that that discourse of that kind is going to start to have an influence and maybe it won't, maybe, maybe, uh, course committees have, you know, learned enough about what's good for them as amateur players versus what's good for professional golfers that they won't go in that direction. But that report from Shupak uh, at Oakmont sort of ch sent a chill down my spine. And I was like, man, I hope this isn't a domino effect. Now, the, the one thing that we can we are reassure ourselves with is that Oakmont is a very particular kind of club yeah. that bases a lot of its identity on being a U.S. Open host and being the toughest course for elite players to play. And not every well-designed course has that identity. So maybe it won't be a chain of events that that ensue from from this one week. Well, we'll see. And the other thing to keep in mind, and this kind of gets into the final part of the conversation I wanted to have with you is like, what, what do we think the identity of the U S open should be? And I think the best take that I've heard, because part of LACC's identity is its width, is its angles, is its options. And on some holes that plays out beautifully on other holes, you're going to have room off the tee where giant messes are, there are a lot of things about 18 that I would argue. And I, I talked about on my preview pod, me and Joseph both talked about how we thought it was one of the weaker holes on the course. And I I'm aware too of, I, I have it and I didn't go there for 
I didn't go there for practice rounds this week, and I haven't I haven't been there in at least six months prior to the course. I remember there being rough there that got somewhat chopped down. So that's a whole other conversation as well, too. Uh, but the the best take I heard on this, and it came from your colleague Andy at the Fried Egg. I can't remember if it was on the Shotgun Start or one of the Fried Egg podcasts, but this concept of you know, if you put 10 of the best chefs in the world together and all of the best chefs put out the exact same menu, how idiotic that would be. And that is what I am worried about is that we're trending in that same direction. To me, the US Open should be a rotation of maybe eight to 12 courses that all have distinct identities, right? And maybe LACC and Pebble Beach are a little bit on the easier side. Maybe that winning score at LACC and Pebble Beach averages minus eight. And maybe when you go to Oakmont and Shinnecock, those are the ones that we know are the most brutal ones. And those winning scores averages plus two. And then Pinehurst and Marion are somewhere in the middle, right? To me, that is far more interesting and compelling and exciting of an identity than if we try and manufacture this one size sort of fits all for the sole reason of ensuring that we get to a winning score of even par every single year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a great take. I think the USGA should brand it, embrace it, and start communicating it. America's greatest courses. We're right. going to America's greatest courses, and each of these courses is unique. That's why it's one of the greatest courses. It's because it's its own thing. It has its own history that you can trace back, in some cases, to the original architect, and we're going to present it in that way, and the outcome will be what it is. Now, that's sort of the identity of the Open Championship. Lynx Golf is, obviously, it's you know, a distinct thing that, which that the by the way, nobody delivers. gets upset when the open yeah. championships won at 15, 20 under par. Cause it's just this accepted thing where, you know, if we get conditions with the open championship, it's going to play hard. And if we don't mm -hmm. get conditions, guess what? That works in America too. <laughs> that, yeah. no, you know, exactly. We, so, right. Yeah. No, nobody worries about the final winning score of the open. That's not a threat to its identity, but the reason it's not a threat to its identity is that the RNA doesn't put itself into it the same way. corner as the USGA <laughs> has. And so, you know, the, the blame firmly falls on, on, you know, not changing the identity or not attempting to change the identity when it becomes clear that I, that identity is untenable. But, you know, I think that what we have laid out right now for the future venues of the U S open is essentially what you're talking about. Nothing needs to change aside from the presentation of some of the courses or the philosophy of setup and restoration slash renovation that happens at each of these courses. And I suppose the worry is that a course like Marion, which has undergone restoration work that involved widening some of the fairways and guess who did it? Gil Hans. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can imagine people comparing that to the Justin Rose us open where the course was at its narrowest. The rough was at its juiciest and it was a very hard golf course. And yeah, I'm sure people get pleasure out of looking at that leaderboard and seeing a bunch of over par scores being pretty good, 
But the fact was, I don't think that tournament was very fun to watch because Marion was not Marion. Neither Marian was, was something else. Yeah, I mean, did you? What did you find more compelling to watch? LACC last week or the Winged Foot Bryson year? Right, and and Winged Foot again a Gil Hance restoration. <laughs> right, and a lot of the work that Gil did there was to expand the greens to their original size and recapture some of these pin positions that were really really difficult. Yeah, the the fairways are narrow. There's not much topography out there. It wasn't particularly interesting to watch unless you're like a real nerd about green design, which which I am. So I enjoyed seeing those because they're yeah. spectacular works of art. Those greens, I mean, that that's it's it's one of the best sets of greens anywhere. But aside from that, Wingfoot didn't deliver much that was awfully interesting. Marion, in its kind of more restored form, I think will be a very, very interesting place. But the thing is, it's it's not going to be what it was. In I guess it was 2016. Is that the right year? 2013 was 2013, Marion, and bet. they're going they're going back in 2030. Do you yeah. think, by the way, that their goal is to have some sort of forward momentum with the rollback by the time we roll? I mean, there ha- there has to be. I a, assume so. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, we are in the comment period now, and the comment period is supposed to end, I believe, next year at some point. And and then we'll start to see the process of putting out the MLR and having people adopt the MLR. That's that's where we are right now. I have a feeling it's going to take a while. The equipment companies are going to put up a fight. It looks like the PGA Tour is going to put up a fight and its players. And so I don't know. But that would definitely change some of this calculus, right? If you took 20, 30 yards away from the drives that we saw at LACC, it would be a somewhat different situation. I'm not saying it would be just like it was 50 years ago because we're not going back to that, but it would definitely be different. Okay, final question I'll get you out on. 2036, we are in charge of this. I mean, you threw out already some options if you're going the let's potentially try and go the municipal route and make this publicly accessible courses, but I'll open this up to to anything you want. That is our next open US Open. Now that Riviera has been announced in 2031, we do not have an open site until 2036. Is there anything on your wish list? And let's also answer this question under the presumption that there is some forward progress with potentially some sort of rollback. Yeah, some sort of MLR. Yeah. That's a good question. I don't really know. I mean, the the current rota of US Open courses that we have is a lot of my wish list. Yeah. But something that I'd like to see, and maybe this is sort of a punt and and apologies for that in advance, but some of the ambition around renovating and restoring courses for the US Open, courses like Bethpage Black, building courses like Chambers Bay, creating viable new venues for these championships. Some of that has gone away recently because the USGA has booked out the US Open so far in advance, it has suppressed some of that ambition, that entrepreneurship around a renovation like Bethpage Black. Now, was that renovation everything I wanted it to be? Of course not. I I wish it were pursuing a different architectural philosophy out there. And maybe someday they will. And, and I hope that happens. But I like the energy around 
golf course architecture and golf course history that the potential of creating a new U.S. Open venue generates. I like that energy to be in golf course development. And I think that because of the USGA's new approach to booking venues, that energy has dissipated a bit. And so what I'd really love to see in that open spot is a brand new venue, a place that the U.S. Open hasn't gone before, maybe a new course, or maybe one of those courses that I mentioned earlier, one of those municipal courses, the Sleepy Hollow. I mean, how cool would it be if they really did a great job restoring Sleepy Hollow to its Stanley Thompson design, made it worthy of a U.S. Open, and we went there in 2036 or whatever it is. To me, that's the top thing on my wish list, much more than saying, let's go to Pine Valley or something like that. I mean, that would be cool. I don't know if they could do it, but it would be cool. I would really love to see a great new golf course project make its way into this rotation. And I hope that because we know more or less where the U.S. Open is going until, you know, I'm 90 years old and you're 80. Right. I hope that that ambition hasn't completely gone away. I'd give Chambers another shot, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that would be the real answer. Go back to Chambers. I mean, Chambers Chambers got a raw deal last time. That's That's a great public golf course. I think so, too. I'm going out there in a week and a half to check it out. I've never been. I've never... I've never played golf in the Pacific Northwest outside of Bandit. So I'm headed your oh, cool. way in about a week and a half to check out Chambers. And I'm pretty You're going, I'm going pretty to the Seattle area? Flying into Seattle. Yeah, we're going to play Chambers. And then I think we're taking a ferry up to British Columbia to to play one or two courses up there. You're going to uh, Victoria? Or are you going to? I'm going to Victoria. Yep. Nice. You got it. Yeah. Nice. Are you when fan? I heard ferry, I was like, yeah, yeah, you're going to Victoria, aren't you? I, to be honest with you, I don't know much about it. And and I sometimes yeah. like doing this where I don't I don't want to read too much about the course uh beforehand. Uh-huh. Uh but I'm going yeah, the trip is Chambers and then Victoria. That place is cool. You're going to have fun. I like the city out there too. Very uh, very excited. Yeah. Canada's a Canada's a, a a cool kind of place, you know. You take a ferry and you get off the ferry and all of a sudden you're in this like really cool city. Um and then there's there's a great golf course there too. So yeah, you'll enjoy that. Um, anything, Garrett, thank you so much for joining me. I could have done this for another hour with you, and I hope hope it's the first of many. But anything you want to throw out to the listeners to check out any other work you got going on this week? Oh, man. I mean, you know, we just wrapped up a lot of work that we did for the U.S. Open. And so I'm just kind of I feel like I've I've gone through finals week. And <laughs> now I don't really know what's next because all of my planning kind of went up to last week. But I guess I would encourage people, if they haven't seen the major videos that we made uh, previewing the U.S. Open, the profile that we did of Los Angeles Country Club, and especially the uh, 30-minute documentary that we did about George Thomas, I just hope that people go and watch those videos, even though this U.S. Open is over. I think they're, they're still, they still should be, I hope, fun to watch and relevant for uh, plenty of time after this U.S. Open, uh, we put a lot into them, and I think that the team in our company that creates those videos, uh, which uh, a very important member of which is Cameron Hurtis, is just exceptional. You know, Cameron edits those videos, comes up with the visuals, and I, I just think that he's absolutely sensational. And so, 
yeah, um, go watch our George Thomas video, our, our LA preview, and hopefully they're still enjoyable, even though the, the tournament is no longer and we're gearing up for link season and the open championship. Garrett, this is a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for joining me. All right. Thank you for having me on, Andy. All right. That is it for the podcast. Special thanks to rickrengate.com. Special thanks to Garrett. And we will be back on this podcast feed probably on Monday, breaking down the Rocket Mortgage Classic. So enjoy your weekend. Best of luck with your bets this weekend. And we will see you next time. Cheers. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream Where my world still runs crack And the dead in the back road stop I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.